Hey everybody, it's my delight to introduce to you Michael Redzina, who is pastoring the Good Shepherd Church in New York City with my son, David. Um, we've known Michael for a lot of years. Uh, when Gail and I were up in New York City, uh, that's the church that we attended. Well, we're, we're so fortunate to have him with us. He's a great communicator, great leader. So open your hearts and uh, receive this uh, message this morning. And now having heard our gospel text, we take a moment to pause and center ourselves in God's love and presence. And we pay attention. It's what makes a moment sacred. So would you join me in a quiet moment where we open ourselves to God and you just simply bring your authentic self. Whether you have lots of faith or doubt this morning, whether you're burdened by sorrows or you feel like you're floating in joy, bring your true self to the moment and let's ask God to take this story and connect it to ours in a way that helps us change. God of love, please use this story in our lives to shape us in the way of love. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I decided this week to unplug from the news. Now, I needed a break. And of course, you can't help but see or hear things here or there. So I wasn't completely ignorant of what was happening, but I wasn't actively chasing anything down. And so it was that I had no idea about Tropical Storm Isaiah's. That morning, I looked at my weather app and it showed showers. So I thought this would be a great uh, sort of weather situation to run in. And I went out. I ran and it was marvelous on the front end. But it was terribly windy on the back end. And I was pelted in the face with rain and with debris by the end. I simply chalked it up to bad storm. And so I cleaned up and I got ready to go to my office. Now, because of the weather, I did this rare thing in this COVID-19 situation, at least for me. I used a ride-sharing app. Now, I really had no choice. I, I couldn't walk, I couldn't bike. So with my mask firmly on and my hands clean and sanitized, I ran through the street to the car and I carefully entered the car. Now, as soon as I shut my door, the storm stopped. My driver, who was a self-proclaimed psychologist, uh, he said he also studied philosophy and analytics. He was amazed. He told me, quote, you don't understand, right? Just moments ago, I saw trees. They were bending over like I've never seen trees bend over in my time in New York as a driver. And the moment you stepped into my car, boom, everything stopped. Now, I smiled and I nodded and then I began to review my email. But he continued persistently and passionately. I think he saw that I wasn't nearly as impressed as he was. And it was in that moment that I realized I made an important mistake. I forgot to put the no talking preference on my app. He leaned back and said, would you like to hear a theory that I have? Well, it's, it's more of an observation actually. And I told him to go on. And so he said, when people get in my car, they bring a vibe. Now, some people get in and immediately the traffic gets really bad. There's accidents all over the place and things are a mess. Other times, people get in and it's like the sea of traffic is parted and we make this miraculous time to wherever our destination is. You, my friend, you must have someone up there that likes you. I told him that I was banking on it. And then I asked him why he thinks this happens. He replied, oh, I can't say exactly. I can only tell you the clear pattern that I observe. 
You know, maybe it's God, maybe it's a higher power, if you believe in that kind of thing. But there's this something going on, I can tell. There's some connection between the people who enter my car and the shift in driving conditions that I experience as a driver. You stop the storm, my friend, he said. Just like the Jesus. And yes, he said the Jesus. And then he added paradoxically at the end, now listen, I'm not superstitious. And that just made my morning. It was a perfect New York moment. You see, the human brain is a connection maker. We're able to read meaning into just about anything. That's how conspiracy theories are born, and it's certainly how they get traction and are sustained. We often have an instinct or a bias, and then we read that bias into the facts to make sure that the facts sort of fit our bias. For instance, for people raised on the teaching that God has three answers to prayer, yes, no, and wait. Some did an experiment praying to a milk jug instead, and the results, they were strikingly similar. See, there's a natural momentum in the brain to support the bias that one already has. And it's that momentum within the self that's accelerated in the context of crowds, that force in the brain to make connections and to create meaning it spills over with even more enthusiasm and a bias to action in a crowd context. In the same way that it's difficult for the individual level, at the individual level to be self-critical, there's almost no such tool for that of a crowd. Jesus had very volatile relationships with the crowds. You know, one moment they were dazzled and they wanted him uh, to be the king. They wanted to crown him. The other moment they wanted to kill him. And what both responses had in common was that they wanted to do it by force because that momentum in the crowd has a bias to action. Jesus had just fed the multitudes. And then in John's story, the crowd is so swept up in enthusiasm and in support that the narrative tells us, quote, when Jesus saw that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself. You see, the crowd, they experienced this miracle of Jesus. They made quick connections in their minds, and then they acted on those connections immediately. But there was something else going on with them. You see, they didn't really understand. They didn't really perceive the meaning of the miracle. And that's the tragedy. So later, when those same crowds eventually chased Jesus down again, he has to, this to say, quote, I tell you the truth. You seek me not because you understand the miracles, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. You see, Jesus can see that they're only interpreting these moments in the most literal and artificial way. Jesus feeds the multitudes and they think, oh, that's amazing. Can you do that again? And Jesus heals a leper and they think again, that's amazing. Please do it again. You see, for them, the miracles are just raw demonstrations of power that solve practical problems. They're impressive. They put Jesus in a positive light, but that's only because a problem, right? A felt need has been addressed for now. But when that problem arises once again, which it always does, the crowd begins to murmur. They begin to grumble. They begin to turn. Almost every problem that Jesus solved by a miracle was a temporary fix. People are fed, but then they become hungry again. 
Jesus calms the storm, yes, but eventually the rain and the wind turn back up. Jesus turns water into wine, but after the hangover and the day to recover, they're ready for more. Even Lazarus, who's raised from the dead, eventually, well, he dies. So what's going on with Jesus' miracles? Miracles like we read today, him walking on the water. You know, they can't simply be raw demonstrations of power that prove that he's divine, right? We could do a quick brainstorm right now and we could come up with more impressive acts of power, right? Let's try it. Walking on water, that's impressive. But what if he moonwalked on water? And I know that's an anachronistic, but it would be also impressive if he could fly over the Sea of Galilee doing loop-de-loops. Multiplying the loaves and the fish, that's nice. But even nicer would be a sort of like cloudy with the meatballs chance uh, type of situation where you get some variety on the one hand and then it's sustainable. Healing the sick. When Jesus does that here and there, it's quite beautiful. But even more impressive would be to say, I don't know, leak the intel on penicillin and spare the millions who died of the diseases and plagues and infections of war. You know, pretty much any problem that humans face could conceivably be eliminated entirely by miraculous power. That is, if miracles are simply about solving human problems in powerful ways. But there's more to Jesus' miracles than that. Every miracle story of Jesus has a deep connection to previous stories of divine encounter in Israel's experience, right? Every miracle has a context. And so each element in the miracle has these connections, rich connections and allusions to other stories, and it means something. Each miracle points to something important beyond the act, and it resonates in the experience of Israel. The feeding of the multitudes, for instance, it is deeply connected to the divine provision of manna for the wandering people of Israel in the desert. It strikes a chord with that constant struggle that Israel had to either trust God's ways of liberation, of justice, and of peace, or to revert back to the violent and oppressive ways of empire, ways that promise more clarity and safety in exchange for their freedom. These are the stories, these are the memories that would be firing in the imaginations of the people as they hear these miracle stories. And that is on purpose. The miracles aren't random. They're not arbitrary demonstrations of power. They are deeply connected to the context and to the stories of the people and to us. And so as we come to these parables and as we consider today's miracle story, it's no exception. Jesus is said to be walking on the sea. The story is in three of the four gospels, but Matthew's the only one to extend the tradition by adding Peter's attempt to walk on the water as well. Now, we could be blown away by the suspension of physics as we know it, but that would be to miss the point. The story isn't told so that we would obsess with the mechanics of how something like this could happen, how someone could walk on water, and then to go out and try it ourselves. It's told because it carries an important meaning for the story that's unfolding in Matthew's gospel and in our stories as well. And so it's important for us to consider those points of connection. And so as we come to reflect on Jesus walking on water, 
we are meant to look at the features and ask, what are these features pointing us to, right? We're look, to look at the deeper meaning here and to ask, how does this story function in the larger story Matthew's telling? And how could this story function for us now? To grasp the story's meaning, I think we have to remember the flow of the story as it's being you know, unfolding in Matthew. Jesus has finally gotten away by himself to pray. And that desire was thwarted by the crowds, if you remember. But he had compassion, and he fed the multitudes anyways. Now, he's finally able to get away to pray, to begin to grieve the loss of John, his friend, known as John the Baptizer. And that loss, it's emblematic of a kind of uh, opposition that's building in the story. The religious leaders are plotting how to destroy him. The fickle crowds, they want to crown him on the one moment, and then in the next breath, they seemingly want to kill him. And all the while, Jesus is preparing his disciples. They're following him. They're watching him. They hear his message. They watch his love. They see him liberate the oppressed, heal the sick, include the outsiders, challenge the gatekeepers, and they're sent out a couple times to do the same themselves. And each time they do it, they gain wisdom. See, Jesus' plan is eventually to hand off his way to them so that they can turn around and hand that way on to others. As the disciples are in preparation, they are out at sea and they're confronted with resistance. Wind, waves, all the stuff of storms is in their midst. And in the Hebrew imagination, the sea is a symbol of chaos and violence. It's something to be feared. It's mysterious. It's seen as unmanageable. It's seen as too turbulent. In the creation poem in Genesis, it's said that in the beginning, there were these chaotic waters and God's spirit hovers over those waters and speaks into that topsy-turvy existence, order and beauty and form. In short, God conquers the waters. Now, anthropologist Rene Girard, he helps us to see that that common image of turbulent waters here is a cover-up for the human chaos of rivalry. It existed before humans discovered a powerful way to bring order through scapegoating violence. To put it a different way, when, when chaos emerges in our families or our friendships, when chaos shows up in our neighborhoods or our cities, or even if we're to scale out and think from a geopolitical lens, Wherever there is chaos, or when there is chaos, because of that swirling wind of desire in our hearts that's stirred and stoked as we keep our eyes fixed on each other, we learned as human beings to find a person or a group to blame, to persecute them, and that seemed to calm the storm. But Jesus is seen here walking right over that swirl of desires with the loving desire from God that can help us rise above the effects of the chaos. Peter himself is able to experience that same protection in the midst of chaos only for a few moments, and it keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. As soon as he looks back to the swirling waters, he starts to take notice, he begins to sink again. The text almost preaches itself here, right? Matthew is the only gospel writer to include this little bit about Peter attempting to imitate his Lord on the water, and I'm glad that he did. This story foreshadows the ways that Peter and the other disciples will attempt to imitate Christ in fits and starts. 
when they keep their eyes on him and his way, wonderful things happen. And I think the same is true for us, right? They heal, they speak good news, they liberate. And in this story, they're able to sort of stay afloat amidst the storm of opposition without getting swept up by it. But at other times, when they take their attention away from Christ, they sink back into the chaotic waters that human culture becomes when it's apart from God's love. So you have two brothers asking Jesus if they can call down, you know, fire from heaven on people that they're annoyed with. Or you have the disciples arguing with each other over petty issues, like who will sit in the place of honor at Jesus' table. Or we could focus on Peter, who's featured in our story today. And we would see adamant promises of commitment and loyalty to Jesus at their last meal. The Jesus who taught nonviolent love, only to be followed up with Peter cutting off a soldier's ear. And then we see his three floundering denials of knowing Jesus. We see his abandonment in the time of Jesus' need. Peter, in the heat of the moment, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and off the way which he's begun to learn, this new way that he's being shaped by, and instead he reverts back to his instincts of violent human culture that we all share, the instincts of ego and the instincts of empire. They operate according to fear, according to self-preservation and personal glory. This story, as I said, it really preaches itself. Who among us can't relate to that rising and that falling nature of Christian spirituality? I'm 40 years old and I'm still amazed, perhaps I shouldn't be, at the way I can quickly devolve into petty rivalry, into envy, into bitterness, when I'm not fixing my imagination on the vision of God that I see in Christ. This is perhaps the mystery of Jesus, constantly retreating to the wilderness or to the mountain to be quiet, to be alone, to reconnect with the God of love, whose way can transcend and can heal the destructive patterns of human culture. It's no coincidence that Jesus is able to transcend the chaotic sea, having reforged that strong, loving connection with the God who is love. And that the disciples must also learn that same power to transcend and to heal. I love Peter's daring here. You know, some critique him for his skepticism, not believing that it's really Jesus approaching and all that. But even in his skepticism, Jesus offers the invitation He says, come. And right now, in the face of conflicting winds and resistance in our lives and the ambivalence that we have toward them, Jesus' invitation rings out, come. Sometimes taking that first step toward healing, toward transcendence is so difficult. And Jesus calls you today to come, to take the step out of the boat, right? Do what Jesus does, imitate his example, Take the risk to be generous in the face of greed. Take the risk to be kind in the face of the one who's rude or belligerent. Take the risk to forgive in the face of one who has hurt you. Take the risk to speak truth to someone who could take you down. And take the risk that the God of love inspires in you this week, whatever it may be. May God give us the power to trust Jesus and his way, to fix our minds and our hearts on the face of Jesus in in the midst of so many distractions and to reach out uh, and grab us. May God reach out and grab us when we cry out. 
because we find ourselves sinking once again. And I hope this week as we face the storms of our life and the resistance of our life, that God's grace will help us, heal us, and save us. Amen.